The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. This morning we're reading from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, since December, uh, we've been working through the the gospel uh, according to Matthew. And for the last several weeks, we've been in this portion of Matthew's gospel that we know as the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's, a, it's a section uh, that the late theologian John Stott once described as the best known, least understood, and least obeyed part of the teachings of Jesus. And, and today we, we hit this new section in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we hit the first of six little passages that, that all follow uh, uh, the same pattern. They all start off with Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You see it here in our text today in verse 21, and then in each of the first sentences of the next six paragraphs, next five or six paragraphs there, and in order to understand what Jesus is doing here, we need to understand what he's not doing here. And what he's not doing is contradicting the law. He's not contradicting the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments or anything like that. We know that that's not what he's doing because he just told us last week in verse 17 that he didn't come to abolish the law. No, he came to fulfill it. Jesus has the, the, the utmost respect for the law in the Old Testament. He's 100% Old Testament, right? What's going on here is, is Jesus drawing out the spirit of the law rather than the letter. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, what they had done was, was sort of thinned out. They'd thinned out the law. They, they had reduced the law by adding to the law. By adding to the law, they made it all about the rules. Just keep the rules. And, and it, came, it came to be more about the rules than about the heart. They, they stopped asking the, the why behind the what of their rule keeping. Why does God want us to live this way? Why does, why does that matter? Why does he want us to live this? Why does it matter to God that, that we live without anger and pursue reconciliation? For example, that's the topic on the front burner this morning, anger and reconciliation. But look at how Jesus brings it up. He says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, on the surface, of course, make no mistake, you shall not murder. That's, that's the sixth commandment, right? It's one of the big ten back in Exodus 20. We don't, you don't want to lose that one. All right. Additionally, the, the punishment for murder is spelled out in Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. Where it says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. And so what the, what the Pharisees did was they took these two and they, they put them together. Right? Doesn't seem like a bad idea. Um, 
But, but they, and when they did that, they came up with this. You shall not murder, and if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. You'll answer to the court. Another translation puts it. And we hear that, and we say, oh, that sounds fine, okay. But look, by adding the second immediately to the first, what they did was they weakened the whole thing. They, they reduced it down essentially to, um, you know, don't murder someone, you'll get in trouble. All right? Don't murder someone. You'll, you'll have to face the judge. You'll be answerable to the courts. Do you see what's missing? God. God's missing. And, and the judgment of God. They, they lost the, the God-centered focus, the why behind the what. They lost that God was the one who said, thou shalt not murder. It came from him as an expression of his own character and his will and his desire. Why are we not to murder? Well, because God said so. That's part of it. But also because, you know, as we read the rest of the Old Testament, or even just the first two, two chapters of it, you know, we come to understand that every human being is created in the image of God. That's a, a cornerstone of biblical anthropology. And so to murder someone is, is, is to attack, it's to, it's, it's to attack the very image of God. They were divorcing their laws, their, their rules, see, from a, a comprehensive God-centeredness. And the result looks a lot like moralism. You know, letter of the law without the spirit. Just do the right things. This is what happens today too, by the way, when we don't agree on the why behind the what of moral norms, even in our society, in our culture. When we we lose a a biblical anthropology, for example, the, the result is a secular morality that bends to the popular will rather than our will being bent to the biblical vision for life. God's vision for our life. Our creator's vision for our life. Additionally, to reduce it down to don't murder, you know, you'll go to jail, was to focus merely on the negative. But the commandments were were never intended to be only about forbidding the negative. They go far wider than that, far deeper than that. Um, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, it's about 400 years old now, uh, has, has a section on, this seems kind of weird to say it, but it has a section on rules, <laughs> rules to, to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments. And one of those rules, it's very important, but it's this, where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. And it has, again, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. That's what the Westminster Divines were talking about here in this part. Where sin, where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. In other words, when God forbids, when his word forbids murder, the contrary, the, the opposite of murder is also commanded. Don't you see, to do not murder was about way more than, than prohibiting premeditated, intentional killing of your personal enemies. Positively, the, the commanded duty, what might that be? Loving your neighbor. Which is why Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Again in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's the first thing that we need to hear from this text. Point number one, pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to your anger. 
Jesus says here that your anger is really no different than murder. It's from the same root. The sixth commandment was never intended to be interpreted so narrowly, so thinly. No, it's, it's broad. It's vast. Rightly understood, the, the spirit of it has to do with anger as much as it has to do with murder. And, and notice here, Jesus, he's not introducing a grading scale. All right? Uh, he makes three statements. I hope you see them here. Every, he says first in verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He has the same word, judgment, used in verse 21. He's saying murder, anger, essentially, same thing, right? Same consequence. And then he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then third, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the point is, is not, you know, hey, anger's pretty bad. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, what's worse is, is uh, calling someone a, a fool, you know, or insulting them. What's really, really bad is calling them a fool. That's not, Jesus is saying it's all the same. It's all really, really bad. And the punishment for any of it, fr- from murder to anger to insults to the name calling, it, it's the judgment of God. Now think about that. Uh, you ever get angry? You know, you ever... Lose your temper <laughs> with a friend or a spouse, parents, maybe with your kids. Isn't it true that God carefully designed little children to know exactly the wrong button to push at exactly the right time in you? Right? Part of his brilliant plan of sanctification. And, and sometimes what can happen then is that you respond in anger. Isn't it also true that those who are closest to us very often bear the greatest brunt of our anger? Maybe you say something, you're, you're, you know, you're not even sure where it came from. Now it's out there. <laughs> now it's out, and you can't take it back. That's the thing about words. You can't take them back. Words can kill, can't they? They, they can hurt. They can wound. They can cut down and, and destroy, like especially over time. That's one way to think about anger. You know, in a, an explosion that, 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 you know, that goes off. <laughs> but we also know about other forms of anger, don't we? Maybe not an explosion, but maybe an, an implosion that goes off inside of you. Where you, maybe you don't say a word. Oh, you're far too good a Christian to, to lash out, you know. But instead, you seethe inside. You boil, you, 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 you mumble, you, you, you grumble, you grow cold towards someone else. You don't say it all out loud, but you, you say it all in your heart. It's the same, Jesus said. Imploding in anger really isn't that different than exploding in, in, in anger in God's eyes. And then what about the insults? The, the, the second one here, the older translations um, have, whoever says to a brother, Raka, Raka, which means, <laughs> you empty head. The, the, the amplified translation of the Bible has, you empty-headed idiot. Oh, or, you know, to quote Buddy the Elf, you know, you cotton-headed muggins, you know. That's, now, not many of us say that out loud, although some of us do. Some of us do, but how many of us have said it without saying it? When, when, when you roll your eyes at someone, you know, uh, 
or maybe, maybe if you just roll your eyes in your heart. Uh, when you sigh at them, all right? When, when someone annoys you at, at, at work and you think, this, this person, my, my goodness, this customer, I can't stand them. Do, do you know the person, um, are, are you this person, that, who thinks, you know what's wrong with the world? Idiots. That's, you know? You know? And, you know, if everyone just stopped being an idiot, honestly, maybe be a little bit more like me, you know, then everything would be, that's Raka. That's Raka. That's the insult that Jesus is talking about here. It's telling someone that they're stupid it's, it's, or making someone feel like they're stupid. It's acting as if someone is stupid, thinking that someone is stupid, empty-headed, that they really don't know what they're doing, and they should. And you say to their face or you say it behind their back or in your heart, Raka. Now, some of you are thinking, I do that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem. And then there's the last one, whoever says, you fool. The Greek word there for fool is moros. It's where we get the English word moron. Yeah, all the kids in the room are like, this is the best sermon ever, you know? (laughs) It means you you good for nothing. Um, You worthless person. And again, you you might not say it out loud, although you might, but anytime anytime you minimize someone, Anytime you ignore someone or you avoid someone on purpose, you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you tell them with your, maybe with your words, but maybe, maybe just with your body language. Tell them to stop talking. What are you saying? You're, you're, you're worthless. You're not worth my time. You're not worth my attention. Or when you're having a conversation with someone and, and you're talking, but then the other person starts talking and, and you lose interest. Like suddenly now it's time to check your phone. You know what the other person feels when that happens? Foolish. Moros. Worthless. Overlooked. Unconsidered. Condescended to. And Jesus says these are all in the same family. We can can call the family anger. They're all in violation of the spirit of the law. They're they're all in in violation of neighbor love, which is why, again, to state the point, we need to pay attention to our anger. Now listen, what's coming next is Jesus, in the rest of the passage, is Jesus talking about reconciliation. And and what that clues us in on is that Jesus is not just concerned about the one-off offenses. Or the the ones that happen when you're having a case of the Mondays or something like that. Although it includes it, what's in view here is is way more serious than that moment of frustration in traffic where somebody cuts you off and you're like, "Hmm, idiot, right? Includes that, but it's way more than that. Jesus is saying that anger, the heart of the issue, it's relational kryptonite. This stuff, it it will erode your relationships. Four times in this short passage, we see the word brother. Do you see that there? At the end, it refers to an accuser or an adversary. What we're talking about includes them too. But first and foremost, Jesus is saying this is a family issue. It's about the family of God relationships within a church even, brothers and sisters in Christ. It could be friend to friend. It could be husband to wife. 
or wife to husband because it goes both ways. It can be parent to child or child to parent. Ministry leaders to congregants, congregants to ministry leaders. Christian to Christian, see? Pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to your heart. Is there any relational kryptonite starting to take hold? Starting to take effect? Any relationships that you can think of, even right now, that maybe you're being affected by this? Oh, sure, maybe it's not as bad as it seems, you know, it sounds, you know, but, but it's there. Maybe a little coolness to the relationship. Hmm? You found yourself thinking, that idiot. Your sympathy, your, your compassion for them is maybe drying up. In fact, maybe you really don't have compassion for that person at all anymore. You started to, you know, maybe, or maybe you stopped really giving them the uh, benefit of the doubt. You've completely stopped thinking about them and how they're experiencing life and the world and your relationship. Instead, your heart's growing a little hard towards them. A little cold. Maybe even disdainful. You're not assuming the best in them anymore. In fact, if you're honest, you actually assume the worst about their intentions. You hear something negative that happens to them. Maybe maybe they miss out on something positive. You you hear it and, and you're like, Satisfying to you in some way. I mean, don't. The mood's a little heavy right now. Don't pretend like you don't do it, right? Don't pretend like you don't do it. You're starting to find that in a twisted way, like it, your, your happiness is somehow tied to their unhappiness. You're irritated by them. There's, there's awkwardness to the relationship. What's happening? It's eroding. It's eroding. Maybe you start a little sanctified ghosting, you know? Nothing too overt. You'll still say hi and smile at church. But you're not smiling in your heart. There's actually anger in your heart if you let yourself call it that. And you actually maybe start going out of your way to avoid that person. Or, or worse, there's no sanctified to your ghosting. And you're, you're not trying to keep up pretenses at all anymore. And you, you cancel them. You cut them off. You cut them out. In, in the far extreme, you, you change churches. Or you give up on church altogether. Like, this stuff is real, isn't it? Like, you have friends who are no longer here because of this stuff is real. You cut off communication, maybe with that family member. You stop attending family holidays. I don't need that kind of junk in my life, you think. That's what you tell yourself. Well, Jesus says, that's not the way it has to end. That's not the way it's supposed to end, especially for Christians. Instead... Second thing we see from this text is that as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to prioritize reconciliation. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. Look at verse 23. says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus does something really interesting here. You have to make sure you don't miss this. Um, it, it's tempting. It's tempting to read this passage and, and think, well, if somebody has a problem with me, they're supposed to come to me. Hmm? It's easy, isn't it, to put ourselves on the receiving end of the reconciliation. That's a, that's a more comfortable spot. 
if I've offended someone in any way, you know, they should come to me. Now listen, in a few chapters, Matthew 18, Jesus is actually going to teach that. He's actually going to teach exactly that. If your brother sins against you in some way, if you're the offended party, the offended party, go to him. The offended, the offended one initiates in that situation, but that's actually not what he's teaching here. Here, you're, you're not the offended, you're the offender. Look closely at the very beginning of verse 23. It says, so if, or therefore if, or so then if. In other words, what Jesus is laying down in verse 23 comes as a result of verse 22. So then if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Listen, if verse 23 flows from verse 22, what does your brother have against you? What, 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 what is it that he has against you? He has something against you because you've been angry at your brother. You've insulted your brother. You've called your brother a fool. You're the offender. And what's happening in verse 23 is you're realizing it. You're realizing it. Call it conviction. Call it a work of the Holy Spirit. Call it come to your senses. It's all of those. It's you realizing I've been a jerk. There's anger in my heart towards this person and, and, and they've experienced that from me. They've experienced my irritation. They've, they've experienced my condescension, my lack of compassion, my annoyance, maybe my explosion or my implosion. I cut them off. I've ignored them. I, I've rejoiced at their suffering. My heart is hardening. It's growing cold towards them. The relationship is eroding. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, and you're putting yourself back in the offended shoes now. You're thinking, that'll, that'll never happen. And that per that'll never happen in that person. I know them. It's happened before. It's never, they've never owned up to it. I'm not even sure they realize they're doing it. That person, they'll never come to me. Well, if they're a Christian, this, this text says they should. This should be normative. Look, look, the same Holy Spirit who lives in you lives in them, and he's the one who does this work. But even if he doesn't, even if he, even if, even if he or she delays, Matthew 18 says you're to go to them then. See, in the end, when you put Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 together, it really doesn't matter who started it. If reconciliation, if reconciliation isn't happening, it's your move. It's your move. You know, sometimes the other person doesn't get it. They don't see it. They're, they're blind to their offending, which honestly is pretty, like, we're, we're, oftentimes we're pretty blind to our own offending, aren't we? And when that happens, it is your job to go to them in love and point it out. They'll never grow if you don't. And God wants to use you in their life for their sanctification. And that uncomfortableness that you feel about going and doing that is going to be for your sanctification too. But, but, don't be so quick to always put yourself in the offended shoes. We're all offendees and offenders when it comes to this stuff. And today, the, the focus is on you when you're the offender. No playing the victim today. We're talking about your anger, your part, 
even if you know in your mind it's like, well, it's only 10 or 20% of the deal. You know, it's just me. My, I was a small part of it. We're talking about your part. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother, or your sister has something against you because how you treated them out of your angry heart, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to them, and then come back. And offer your gift. In other words, prioritize reconciliation. Let me just illustrate and apply this for us all at once. You know, the language of altar and offering or gift, you know, the, the, the animal sacrifice is the imagery that, that's, that's really behind this. Um, that's all maybe a little outside our, our, our normal experience, so bring it into the 21st century. Let's just say it's Sunday morning, you know, hypothetically. <laughs> And this past Wednesday, or Tuesday, or Thursday, during your gospel community, I don't have anyone in mind. My GC didn't meet last week, all right? So we're, we're, you know, we're out of clear here. The names are made up, but the problems are real. Let's just say at GC this past week, someone said something fairly innocuous. And they didn't mean harm, but, but you know, it rubbed you the wrong way. It really rubbed you the wrong way. In fact, there was a little implosion that happened inside of you. You didn't show it, you know, because you, you want to be a good Christian. But on the ride home, and when you got home, even the next morning, the implosion was still going off. If you're married, you know, you processed, you processed it with your spouse, vented a little bit. How dare they say that? How dare they? Can you, be, can you believe that idiot? Can you believe they said that? What a moron. You know, a couple more days go by, and now, now here you are on Sunday morning, right? And uh, you come into the sanctuary, and they do too. And pastor man comes up and, and calls us to worship. We're here to worship Jesus. You know, that's what we do. That's what we do here. And when we start singing, what are we doing? We're worshiping God. We're offering our worship to God. We're, we're doing what the first part of verse 23 talks about. And if while you're doing that, you suddenly remember... That person who said that thing that you imploded over. Or hey, maybe you, maybe you actually exploded a little bit. And God's bringing that to mind. He'll do that, you know. Sometimes just through the Spirit's unaided work. Sometimes through our corporate confession. Or the lyric of a song. Or a sermon on anger. <laughs> or even just prayerfully in you as you address God at some point this morning. Maybe you pray like they, the end of Psalm 139 where, where the, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Like, try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. <laughs> if, when, God causes you to remember that your brother, your sister, that they have something against you because of your anger, because of your heart, because of how you treated them, how you reacted, how you related to them, the coldness in your heart towards them, what are you to do? Leave. <laughs> Leave your gift there before the altar and go, like, this is going to sound crazy. Stop worshiping is what it says. <gasps> Stop worshiping in a sense and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. This is the commands of Jesus here. 
Go to your brother and then come back. Get reconciled, then come back and continue your worship. Do you see the priority? Do you see the, the overriding importance of reconciliation? Do you see that the point is if we have unreconciled anger with a fellow Christian, it's monstrous to think that God will find our hypocritical worship acceptable. I mean, we love, don't, we're pretty good at substituting ceremony and looking the part for actual in integrity and purity and love. Jesus says, no thank you. It's a sham. Jesus is saying, stop worshiping. Go be reconciled and then come back and worship. Church, this has got to be normal for us. It's got to be. This has got to be normal for you. Look, we put a high emphasis on community around here. We spend a lot of time together. We get, we get vulnerable, which also means we, we can easily hurt and easily be hurt in our vulnerability in all that time spent together. And if this isn't normative for our church, we won't make it as a church. You realize, right, that Jesus wouldn't have had to put this in his sermon if we didn't need it. We need it. You need it. If you don't learn how to do this, you know, in, in our church family, in your own biological family, with your friends, if you don't learn how to do this, you're going to grow old and angry and bitter, increasingly closed off. You'll stop trusting other people. You know, do you know some people like this? You'll be lonely, frustrated, hardened, and at some point, no one will ever want to spend time with you anymore ever again. Now, we'll talk a little bit, in a little bit here about how. How do you do this? But first here, you got to see that Jesus is teaching us to prioritize reconciliation. Even higher than worshiping him, which seems pretty high for someone who says we're to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It seems pretty high for a God who says, no other gods before me. Give me, give me your wholehearted devotion. How can he say that we're to prioritize reconciliation over worship? Well, because our reconciliation is part of our worship. All our life is worship. And therefore, pay attention to your anger. Prioritize reconciliation. And then thirdly, third point, pursue reconciliation urgently. Urgently. That's what the last two verses are about. Jesus is providing an illustration here. Two, two illustrations, actually. The first one is, you know, if you're, if you're there at the altar and, and you suddenly remember, the second one here uh, underlines urgency. Look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. This is an illustration. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penalty. Now, in Jesus' day, there was something called a debtor's prison. And if you defaulted on your debts, you could, you could be thrown in there and by a judge in the courts who heard your case until the full amount owed was paid. And if you're in prison, you might be realizing um, it's really hard to earn money, earn money while you're in prison, isn't it? It's really hard then to pay off your debt and uh, secure your own release. You're actually pretty helpless. It's too late. 
Now, your, your friends and relatives, they can come to, to your aid, but, but the reality was you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Contrary to Catholic teaching, this passage is not teaching about purgatory. It has nothing to do with life after death. It has everything to do with life before death. Before it's too late. It's an illustration, and specifically, it's illustrating the urgency of personal reconciliation. Jesus is teaching here, the point is this, come to terms quickly, reconcile quickly, while there's still a chance. Animosity is a time bomb. And it's ticking, ticking, ticking in unreconciled relationships. And there will come a point where that bomb will go off. Leaving it alone lets it grow. And therefore, we're to pursue reconciliation urgently. Before bitterness sits in. Before hearts are hardened. Or to go up higher in the passage. Before it's too late and judgment comes upon an unreconciled relationship. You know, most Christian relationships that are destroyed um, could have been preserved if there was humility, communication, reconciliation sought at the right time. Not all. And there's got to be humility on both sides. But, but a lot of relationships, Christian relationships that are destroyed could have been preserved. Jesus is teaching us that the right time is as soon as we're aware that our brother has something against us because of our anger towards them. Pay attention to your anger. Prioritize reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation urgently. How? I mean, that's, that's great. Three points, nice. How do you do that? Well, that could be a whole other sermon, right? But let me say this at least. Pursuing recon- reconciliation, in this case where, where you're the offender, remember, means initiating with the other person. Verse 24 is pretty clear. Go. Go. <laughs> go to them. You don't triangulate. You don't, you don't gossip with someone else and, you know, and, and you know, have them do it back to you or something. Go to them in a spirit of repentance. This is so key. Biblical reconciliation requires repentance and forgiveness. Not just talking about it. Not just venting to where you feel a little bit better about it now. Not just hanging it all out there and then sweeping it under the rug later. Not having a big shakedown and and just releasing the frustration that you feel in your heart so it feels better to get it all off your chest. That might make you feel better emotionally for a little bit. It's not, it's not taking care of it, though, is it? We end up stuffing it back deep inside, locking it back up in our heart, and saying, I'll never let that person hurt me ever again. We're talking, we're talking about actual, actual reconciliation, biblical reconciliation, which requires repentance and forgiveness. Notice I said repentance, not confession. Repentance includes confession, but it must never be reduced down to confession. Repentance includes acknowledging sin as sin, that you have sinned 
It didn't just like, oh, I lost my temper. No, it's sin. You've sinned against your brother or sister in Christ. It also includes experiencing genuine godly sorrow for your sin, hating your sin. It's like, man, I did that, and I, I hate that I did that. And then from that place of godly sorrow for your sin and hating your sin, now you go and confess. Now you confess. You say, I, I'm so sorry that I sinned against you in this way. You go to them. You go to them from a place of being poor in spirit. Mournful over the, this, your own sin. Meek. The Beatitudes, right? Not overbearing, not, not domineering, humble, humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You, you go to them from a place of being pure in heart, as pure in your heart as you can be. A peacemaker, so much as it depends upon you. And you accept all your responsibility. Even if it was, you know, 60-40 them to you in your mind. You're there to accept 100% of the 40%. You're not there to say, you know, boy, I'm, I'm really sorry I did this because you did that. Which is, you know, an unspoken way of saying, you made me do it. You made me do it. I'm sorry that you made me do it. That's not really, that's not really it, is it? Um, you're not there to say, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. <laughs> Have you done that before? You know, you know what I'm you know what I'm talking Which is a, it's a way of saying sorry, not sorry. It's a way of saying, essentially, you know, if you, if you weren't so darn sensitive. Which said, it's saying, you're the real problem here. I'm sorry that you're the real problem here. No, you go poor in spirit. You go with genuine sorrow. You own fully everything that you need to own. You confess, I have sinned against you in this way. And you ask, will you please forgive me? And you leave it in their court. You know, they, they might say, Abs absolutely. They, they might say, you know, I do, and here's my part in it too. Or they might say, thank you for apologizing. I'm not really sure if I'm ready to forgive yet. Because they're hurt. And God might need to do some, some healing work there. It might take some time. Or they might actually now have anger in their own heart towards you as the result of your original anger and dismissiveness or disdain towards them. It's messy, isn't it? This is messy. Real messy. And repentance doesn't just end with you know, the, the request and granting of forgiveness. No, it also includes change. And so you talk about, hey, from now on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this instead of that. I'm, so, you know, I, I'm sorry I sinned against you. Please forgive me. From now on, I'm going to do this instead of that. Would you pray that God would enable me to do that? Because I'm pretty powerless to do it all by myself. Listen, it's way easier to preach a sermon about this than to actually do it. It's even easier to listen to a sermon about this than actually do it. This is hard. This is humbling. I mean, humiliating almost, right? 
If you've been in a situation like this, you, you know how hard it is, that, that terrible feeling in your gut that you know you've got to do it, but it's so hard. It can feel like a spear to the side. It, it can feel like taking lashings on your back or nails in your hand or thorns to your head. That's hyperbole. But it makes the gospel point. That the only way you can do this, all that we're talking about today, the only way you can pay attention to your anger like this and prioritize reconciliation and pursue it with urgency even is if you understand, I am a sinner saved by grace. It's the only way. The only way you can go through the pain, the, the, the hardness of pursuing reconciliation is when you realize all that Jesus went through to reconcile you. And that he has and that you're, you're sinful, of course you are. There's anger in your heart from time to time? Yes, of, of course. Nobody's denying that it's there. But also, you've been saved by grace. Saved by Jesus. He took the lashes on his back. He took the thorns to his skull. He took the nails through his hands and the spirit to his side. Why? So that all your sin could be forgiven. So that you could be reconciled with God. And when you realize that, when you realize all that Jesus did for you, angry you, like when you realize in a sense that you've been the idiot, you know, like you've been the fool, you've been the cotton-headed ninny-muggins, and yet God has forgiven you in Christ. And that if he didn't, if he held any of your sins, even just one of them against you, you'd be doomed. Liable to the hell of fire. And yet instead you've been saved by grace. When you realize that, when you realize the gospel, it begins to drain the anger out of you. It drains it out. See, the more you understand the gospel, the more the, the gospel gets in you and takes a hold of you, the, the less you can stay angry at people. And the more, you, the more you're angry at people, the less you understand about the gospel. The more you understand the gospel, the more you'll pay attention to the anger in your own heart. The more you'll prioritize reconciliation and the more you'll pursue it with urgency, trusting that the same gospel that is alive and active in you is alive and active in the brother or sister that you've offended. And that the same Holy Spirit who is doing work in you is doing work in them too. And that same Holy Spirit longs for, labors for, reconciled relationships that glorify God. <laughs> and it's actually what we're talking about today is actually a pretty big part of what happens at this table each week when we come here. Um, at this table, we, we, sometimes we'll talk about this table as a a portrayal and a nurturing of our unity together in Christ. Um, this table is a picture that we've been reconciled together with God. And, and not just in this individual relationship, but we come together and we do this together. We come to the table together because we're not just reconciled vertically with God. We've been reconciled as brothers and sisters in Christ into the family of, of God. And again, it, it, this table portrays and nurtures that unity. That's how we talk about this table sometimes. And we get that language from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. After the words of institution that Paul recounts there, 
he goes on and he says something. We don't, we don't often read this part, but he goes on and he says in verse 27 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, because we're Americans, we read that part about examining yourself, and we think that it's all about you know, my relationship with God. And am I, am I good with God? Am I worthy enough to come to this table? Which is a stupid question, right? Because none of us are worthy to come to this table, save for the work that Jesus has done in our life. But what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, the whole context of the letter is this checked-up church in Corinth. And all the, all the messy relationships that were happening to them, all the fractures to the unity that they were experiencing, all the unreconciled relationships. And so he says, before you come to this table, before you partake in the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Why? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body of Christ here, us, the church, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is a time in, in our service we don't get just to come together and portray the unity that we have in Christ, but nurture it. Every time when we hear the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, it ought to be a, a prompting to us to ask some questions, to self-examine. Do I have any unreconciled relationships within the body of Christ? Is there any anger going on in my heart that needs to be dealt with? Every week is an opportunity for this church. That's how it nurtures our unity. And then when we come together, come to this table, we portray it. And so listen, before you come to this table today, you, you might need to go to somebody in this room. I don't know. You might need to go be reconciled with your brother or sister first and then come. I don't know. But every time that we hear the institution of the Lord's Supper, we ought to be prompted to think that way. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed... He took bread. And when he, give, when, he, when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. You, collectively, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we, we believe that the gospel is true. And that all, although we've offended you with our sin, you, you, you came for us. You sent Jesus for us and reconciled us. And through repentance and faith and forgiveness, we are Restored. We're restored with you. And also, you've, you brought us into a, a body of fellow Christ followers, fellow believers, image bearers. And so, God, I, I pray right now before we come to this table, Lord, that I pray for any reconciling that needs to happen within our body. Friend to friend. Husband to wife. Wife to husband parent to child, 
child to parent, ministry leaders to congregants, congregants to ministry leaders, Christian to Christian. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Spirit of God, would we pay attention to anger in our hearts and prioritize reconciliation and pursue it with urgency? Would we do this regularly and teach others through our example? Knowing and trusting that those who do will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so empower us now to walk this out. Use this bread, use this wine, use this table, this moment for us to examine ourselves and nurture and portray our unity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.